Um, all right. Well, it's about a minute after the hour. So first of all, to all of us here um, at Maryland and those of us joining us uh, via Zoom, welcome back to University of Maryland Critical Care Grand Rounds. Happy to start off another year, another season of education and learning from experts around the country and really around the world, as you'll hear today. Um, so I'm happy to have you all joining us. Um, today's talk, I'm very excited, is uh, by Dr. Schmidt. He's actually joining us from Paris, as you may have just heard me saying. Um, he's going to be talking to us about a paper he recently published in the Blue Journal. Um, I put the link in the chat for anyone who hasn't read it who'd like to download it and take a look. Um, the talk today is going to be about ECMO for severe ARDS uh, with, for patients with COVID-19 and what can be learned from an emulated trial or an emulated target trial. Um, Dr. Schmidt, thank you again for joining us. I know it's um, nine o'clock for you, as you said. Uh, it's really nice to have you here, and I look forward to the talk. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your invitation. Uh, so here are my uh, disclosures. So uh, as you know, because you are practicing uh, a lot of, you are doing a lot of ECMO cases, uh, ECMO in CVRDS is now a well-established uh, treatment uh, since uh, the CESAR trial, which was in 2009, showing uh, benefit from uh, from doing ECMO with CVRDS compared to conventional management, especially when you did it, when you do it during the first seven days, which was uh, the inclusion criteria of this uh, trial. Unfortunately, this trial was um, suffered from serious, serious methodology bias, and uh, we had to wait uh, 10 more years to get the earlier trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, with uh, this uh, three inclusion criteria. So it's very important to have in mind this criteria because this criteria, you will see later on that we we used this inclusion criteria in our work recently published. So with one of the three following disease severity criteria, PF ratio lower than 50 for more than three hours, PF ratio lower than 80 for six hours, or severe respiratory acidosis, for more than six hours. And after including uh, 249 patients, uh, the result, uh, especially the primary out, uh, endpoint, was uh, mortality uh, at day 60. And as you see, uh, this trial show a difference in terms of mortality between the two groups, the ECMO group and the control group with 11% uh, difference mortality. But uh, this uh, trial didn't reach the magical p-value of 0.0.5. And this uh, was mainly due to a large number of patients, which are called crossover patients, meaning that patients allocated to the control group who were switched later on uh, to ECMO because it was unethical to uh, let them uh, dying uh, in the control group. So uh, if you look at the secondary endpoint, and if you consider, if you compare deaths in ECMO group patient versus deaths or crossover to ECMO in control patient, by making the assumption that uh, patients were crossovered with very strict criteria uh, were almost dying, uh, in that case, you see that you reach uh, the uh, very significant value and you get the difference uh, between the mortality between the two groups with 35% uh, mortality in the ECMO group versus 57% uh, 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 survival, uh, 
no, for the death, sorry, in the control group. And this study was also uh, impressive by showing that beyond uh, the pulmonary replacement, um, most of the uh, secondary endpoints were positive, uh, meaning that putting a VV ECMO has also an impact on the hemodynamics of the number of day on free of dialysis and, uh, and so on. So back to the COVID-19, uh, we apply early on uh, the same methodology as uh, we did in Eolia, meaning that we use ECMO for COVID-19 patients. But as you will see, uh, we were not able to compare at all uh, our treatment versus to compare it with a, a control group without ECMO. And uh, during the first one and a half year uh, of the pandemic, uh, we had only large cohort, uh, like uh, this one from my department, uh, which was one of the first large cohort published with 83 patients uh, on, on ECMO. Uh, it, it only described our current practices uh, during the pandemic with this COVID-19 patient. And during this uh, uh, first months of the pandemic, we strictly apply We even reinforce them by making prone positioning on neuromuscular blockade almost mandatory, uh, which was not the case, uh, strictly the case in the earlier trial. And we apply exactly the same uh, inclusion criteria or entry criteria for having, uh, for being uh, an ECMO candidate uh, in our department. And this is just uh, just to briefly show you uh, this um, this cohort, 83 patient, very young patient uh, with some um, classical comorbidities for COVID-19 patient, uh, hypertension, diabetes. You see that the time from intubation to ECMO was only four days, and most of the cases were retrieved from everywhere around Paris uh, at that time. Both patients were very severe, uh, with one only person F5, two IP plotted, all ventilated with six mil per kilogram, uh, high respiratory rate, high blood pressure as well, and uh, PF ratio at 60, so uh, much lower than um, than the patient uh, included in the earlier trial with a PF uh, with a pH at 7.32 in median, and uh, as you see and probably what differ from previous uh, cohort uh, on, on, of patients on, on ECMO outside uh, before the COVID-19, you see that nearly all of them receive no muscular blockades or prone positioning before being considered as a, a potential candidate. And it was almost mandatory at that time for us because we were, as everywhere in the world, we were, we were lacking of ICU beds, and we have a high pressure on our resources. And this is uh, uh, the, the result of this descriptive cohort of COVID-19, uh, of ECMO during COVID-19, with uh, a, a mortality at day 60 at 31% and a day 19 at 36%, which was quite similar, quite reassuring for us because it was similar to that reported in previous study uh, on ECMO uh, for CVIRDS before COVID-19. However, uh, we were able to compare uh, COVID-19 patient on ECMO and the ECMO arm of EOLIA study, and we show that those patients uh, have some differences. And this is very important because 
This is the rationale for using uh, uh, the emulated target trial that we will discuss uh, later. And we see that we show that the compliance of the COVID patient were, were much lower compared to uh, those patients included in the OLIA uh, trial. They were also younger, uh, less uh, proportion of immunocompromised patients, higher BMI as well. Um, and uh, those patients can, were cannulated a little bit later compared to the OLIA ECMO group, uh, mainly because we tried to to do to prone to prone them to use neuromuscular blockades to try to optimize uh, a mechanical ventilation before uh, putting them on ECMO because of the context. PF ratio was lower as well, and as we have already discussed, high pre-ECMO prone positioning compared to the earlier trial, and also a very high proportion of patients prone on ECMO uh, during that uh, time. Regarding complication nearly uh, the same rate of MRH requiring transfusion, high, high rate of pulmonary embolism, mainly due to the vascular tropism of, uh, of, the, of that virus, virus, and a very high rate of antibiotic-treated VAP. When you look at uh, the outcome of those patients, you see that they spend nearly more 10 days on, on ECMO support, 10 more days compared to the earlier uh, group, and they spend a very long time in ICU. And despite this longer stay in ICU, longer stay on ECMO, you see that the 60-day mortality was nearly uh, the same, even if we can't strictly uh, compare it. It was confirmed by this large uh, publication from uh, the LSO showing exactly the same result with the same mortality at, at day 90, nearly 38%. So uh, uh, for during this first wave, we have all the same mortality, and we can say that ECMO was, uh, was leading to the same mortality uh, for COVID-19 compared to non-COVID-19 uh, patients. However, we have seen uh, during the, the, the pandemic that we have an evolving mortality, and we uh, report and published again uh, um, result during the, the second wave of, of COVID-19 in France. And during that time, we apply exactly the same uh, criteria, ECMO criteria, and we have exactly the same medical team, same nursing staff, same ECMO indication. And despite that, uh, we show that uh, patients were a little bit different, but the outcome was also very different between the wave one and wave two. So those patients were a little bit younger, older uh, in wave two. Uh, and what was different is uh, it's mainly uh, the time uh, between uh, ICU uh, intubation and ECMO. It was most of the patients during the wave, the first wave, were rapidly intubated in our department. And uh, during wave two, uh, we were using much more high flow oxygen before intubation, non-invasive ventilation before intubation. So we spend much more time before intubate uh, the patient. However, if you just look at the, the delay uh, between intubation to ECMO, you see that it was in, and this is a, a very frequent criteria that we are using uh, for um, to determine 
who, who might be a, a good candidate for ECMO. So the main difference was the, we use much more high flow oxygen, much more non-invasive ventilation. So we postpone the intubation compared to the first wave when the patient were rapidly uh, intubated. On top of that, those patients on wave two receive much more dexamethasone because of the uh, recovery trial. And uh, it impacts on, on, on the outcome probably because you see that despite using exactly the same inclusion criteria, we have a worse prognosis on, on wave two with the mortality uh, moving from 31% on, on wave one to 46% at day 60. It was even worse at day 90 with the mortality uh, growing from 36% to 48% uh, on wave two. Uh, this was not uh, uh, something uh, only in our center. It was also a report uh, in all the center, uh, especially uh, that publication from Spain and Portugal in a large number of patients showing exactly the same thing, that uh, the mortality was increasing uh, on, on wave two, which it was even above 15% in this uh, severe patient. Those patients were a little bit older, have more comorbidity, and were also less frequently treated in high volume centers. Um, the time between admission, uh, ICU admission to ECMO start was also longer, but the, the time between intubation and ECMO was similar. And a uh, few months later, uh, the ESO confirmed uh, this uh, worst prognosis on wave two. And also this paper highlights uh, uh, the negative impact of new centers, meaning those centers with less experience uh, in ECMO with a very high mortality uh, reaching uh, 60%. So in fact, uh, after this first year, we were uh, convinced, and I think you are probably sharing the same impression, some feelings, that COVID ECMO patients are a little bit different from non-COVID ECMO patients. And there is an increased mortality over time. There is a longer duration of support. There is a greater risk of thrombosis. And those patients need more anticoagulation, meaning that they are likely to have uh, bleeding complication, more frequent use of immunosuppression, increased risk of infection, and high prevalence of early failure. So with that, uh, we we were not so sure that we could say that ECMO save life if you compare it to non-ECMO patients in the in, in COVID field. And when you look in the literature at that time, uh, if you want to compare non-ECMO COVID patient versus ECMO COVID patient, meaning if, if you want to have some data to suggest that ECMO is beneficial in uh, those patients, you have uh, uh, just few cohorts, uh, retrospective one, which have compared uh, patients when uh, we say ECMO no never, meaning that those patients are too sick 
to receive ECMO. And you see that the survival uh, in, in red was 20%. You can also compare to patients when you take the decision to say, to say ECMO, no, not yet, meaning that those patients might be a potential candidate, but without at that time that those patients have still room to be improved. There, there is still room to improve them by increasing mechanical ventilation, by trolling again for one session and so on. And you see that in that case, survival was almost similar. But when you do that, obviously, you have many unmeasured confounding factors. So it's very difficult based on retrospective data to, and, and based on observational study to have causal inference. Causal inference is the fact that is the, the, word, the, the goal of that is to estimate the causal effect of an action to an, out, on, an outcome. So in our example, in our, today we are talking about ECMO and final outcome, mortality, uh, a strong outcome like mortality. And in biology, chemistry, physics, engineering, they primarily use experimentation. In epidemiology, public health, economic sociology, it often turns to observational study. And we know that the best way to have causal inference, to estimate the causal effect of an action, is the RCT. It's a gold standard for evidence regeneration in medical decision making. And the causal inference, to have causal inference, it relies on three main assumptions. And this is important to consider. There is the first one is exchangeability, sorry for my accent. Uh, it means that you have no unmeasured confounding. It means that all common cause of the treatment and outcome are known and measured in the data. And this is something which is very complex to capture when you have observational studies, especially when you have retrospective uh, data. Exchangeability means also that there is no selection bias. And uh, also this is something complex to, uh, to get when you have observational study because there are so many factors uh, that will interfere, interfere with the fact that you give that treatment to this patient and you don't give that treatment to the other patient. And um, another um, assumption that you have, uh, that you need for causal inference is to have positivity, meaning that there is non-zero probability of all level of treatment for all types of individuals in your population. And the last assumption is consistency. It means that you have, you need to have a clear specification of treatment level. You have to have a well-defined well -defined intervention and a well-defined causal question. So in our case, the, um, the intervention is going to be the ECMO, ECMO. Obviously, RCT is the best way to assess a causal relationship between, uh, between ECMO and outcome. However, during the pandemic, it was a messy time. Uh, we, we are all struggling to find beds to care for the patient. It was, it takes, it's expensive, it's untimely, meaning that it would have taken 
maybe probably two, three, four, five years to do the to do ARCT. In that case, because you need to secure funding, then you need to onward patient, have ethical approval, and so on. It might even be considered as unethical to not propose ECMO uh, in a very severe ADS COVID patient, especially if you based uh, if you base your if it's based on the result of the earlier trial. So clearly it was too complex to do that in the context of pandemic. So in that case, what you can do, you can take some classic epidemiological studies like cohort studies, case control studies, and try to, to match two population. But you have always the issue with the selection bias and with the confounding factors. Or you can find some large electronic medical records or large cohorts and to use this large register to uh, emulate uh, a trial. So in observational study, you will have only indirect evidence and clearly uh, you will lack of a formally testable causal relation. So a way could be uh, to address this concern it's to design observational study in such a way that the observational data emulate those from hypothetical randomized experiment. But for that, you need to have a well-defined intervention, well-defined group, and, uh, and you, have, you, you have to well-define this group because otherwise the two groups will be too different. And this will explain why uh, why one group received more and the second one didn't receive it. And with observational study, what we commonly do is to try to measure as many variables that might be responsible for the non-comparability and try to adjust for them in a statistical analysis. This is what you do when you adjust, uh, uh, when you want to compare two population and you adjust it with a propensity score, for example. And there is also one other uh, uh, bias is that sometimes the exposure is time varying. And maybe sometimes the confounders are themselves affected by prior exposure levels. So it means that your patient might not be a candidate at day one, but might be a candidate at day two, at day three, or day four, or day five. And if you do just observational study, you will only capture uh, uh, the state of the patient at day one, for example. And you will not capture what happened before. And that's why uh, we use this complex methodology to, we try to emulate a target trial with observational data and this uh, uh, method, this statistical methodology has been uh, well described since five years, nearly five years, uh, by uh, um, Miguel uh, Ehrman. Uh, it's an American, um, American doctor and I mean, American statistician. And by this way, you can increase the transparency and replicability of observational effect estimates. So, in fact, what you do, you specify the protocol for a political randomized trial, 
and then you emulate this using the available observational data. So this is clearly what we did. So the aim of the study was like uh, RCT. We wanted to estimate the effectiveness of ECMO initiation within seven days of mechanical ventilation, like in the earlier trial, on a very large cohort of COVID-19 hospitalized in ICU in France. So we use a cohort, a large cohort that we published in uh, intensive care medicine a couple of months ago. So a large cohort with 4,244 patients uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. And with this database, we have daily, daily, um, daily respiratory function of the patient during the first 14 days. And we were able to, 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 to do like, like you do when you RCT. If you want to design an RCT, you will, you will create, you will uh, design some eligibility criteria or inclusion criteria. We do exactly the same in our work. We say that an ECMO candidate should be in our cohort a patient younger than 70 years old, a patient with a SARS-2 lower than 90 to eliminate those patients who receive ECMO for uh, disparate, with disparate outcome. Uh, those patients should be in ICU for less than 14 days. They should be ventilated for less than seven days. Their PF ratio should be lower than 80 or the PCO2 should be above 60 millimeter mercury. And obviously, they should never receive ECMO during that hospital stay uh, before. So we use the inclusion criteria of the earlier trial. But the specificity, as you can see, is that in the earlier trial, we have a, a, a duration point, meaning that the PF ratio should be lower than 80 for more than six hours. With retrospective data, obviously, this point is not you can't capture it. So we use the worst value of the day. So uh, it means that all patients in the COVID ICU cohort could be potential candidates for ECMO because in France, we have a, a very large network of mobile ECMO teams. We have retrieval and we are quite experienced uh, with that. We say that all patients in the COVID ICU cohort could be a candidate for ECMO. In an RCT, you will randomize patient to ECMO initiation or non-ECMO initiation. Obviously, with observational study, you can't do that. You can't do a randomized assignment. So we, uh, uh, the treatment strategy was defined based on the treatment we see from day one to day seven after uh, mechanical ventilation. So it means that patients were not candidate on day one because the PF ratio, uh, patient with PF ratio lower than 80 or PCO2 above 60 who didn't receive ECMO at day one were assigned to the control group. Those patients who received ECMO at day one were assigned, assigned sorry, to uh, the ECMO group. And we repeat, we repeat this selection the next day. So we did that for the first seven days of mechanical ventilation. 
And the patient, based on the eligibility criteria, could be to the non-ECMO initiation, so the control group, or could be assigned to the treatment group. And so it's exactly what we do is like we artificially randomize the patient at day one, at day two, at day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, uh, based on the physician decision to start ECMO or to not start ECMO. The outcome was all-cause mortality uh, in the hypothetical RCT. So we use exactly the same in the emulated trial uh, in the observational study. Um, the time, the type of outcome was time for randomization up to death in an RCT. Uh, and we use time from start of EME uh, from, uh, of invasive mechanical ventilation to death from day one. And we uh, assess the mortality of patient at day 90 uh, after inclusion in the study, so minimum after uh, the first day of mechanical ventilation. Obviously, because it's not randomized, we have to, uh, we have to adjust uh, uh, the two. You, you have to adjust on several factors that are well known to impact on the ECMO decision. So we, uh, to be sure that the ECMO group and the control group were, were comparable. So for that, we adjust uh, to uh, many factors like age, sex, inclusion period, BMI, the time from the first symptom to ICU admission, the time from intubation to inclusion, if bacterial co-infection, corticosteroids, diabetes, immunodeficiency, PF ratio, renal and cardiovascular components of SOPA score, point positioning before ECMO, neuromuscular blockade before ECMO. And by this way, we minimize the confounding factors between the ECMO group and the control group. So we adjust for confounders at the start of each trial, meaning that we adjust for confounders at day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, until day seven. And if we would have designed an RCT, it would have been an intention to treat uh, um, a manner uh, RCT. So uh, to mimic that, we, uh, we censored we censor, uh, the control patient who initiate ECMO, meaning that a patient who was in a control group could be on the control group at day two, control group at day three, control group at day four, and so on until day seven. But if a patient of the control group at day one had an ECMO at day two, then it was, it was censored and was not uh, participating to the trial at day three, day four, day seven. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at day 90, and uh, uh, we compare the marginal survival probabilities at day 90 under each of the two treatment strategies. Uh, if it was in an RCT, if it would have been in an RCT, it would be what would have been the survival if all patients meeting eligibility criteria had started more compared with none of them. We do a couple of sensitivity analysis uh, after that because we were aware of the ECMO literature and impact of the ECMO volume center was uh, quite impressive uh, in the previous uh, publication. So we compare 
the outcome between high and low ECMO volume samples. We compare the outcome by doing a sensitivity analysis in the most hypoxemic patient, meaning those with a PF ratio lower than 65. We, do also, we did also a sensitivity analysis uh, in patients who were cannulated late, even if we can say late, because late was from day five to day seven. And we also compare, we, do, we did a sensitivity analysis by restricting patients uh, uh, were managed were managed in Paris and uh, greater area when we have when we uh, start and we uh, we, we put a, a specific reorganization of mobilic motifs uh, during that period with a centralization of ECMO indication. So uh, we have a, um, a large number of patients, 269 patients with ECMO. So you see that those patients uh, were young, 55 years old. Uh, the time between uh, invasive mechanical ventilation to ECMO was significantly longer for those patients who passed away. Uh, patients who died at 60 days at uh, more frequently, renal replacement therapy, they have also higher PCO2. Uh, they were almost all of them were prone pos were, were received prone positioning before ECMO, uh, and uh, nearly 100% received continuous neuromuscular blockade. Those patients uh, spend a median of 12 days on ECMO for patient life. Uh, they spend 27 days on invasive mechanical ventilation. They spend 31 days in ICU and 43, uh, 43 days in the hospital. So this is the uh, raw population of uh, ECMO patients inside this large cohort. And when you start, when you do your emulated trial, at the end, you have 164 unique ECMO patients, which will be compared to 2,992 non-ECMO patients, but in that cohort, you have one patient could be could be uh, several times in that cohort because this patient was a candidate at day one, day two, day seven uh, until day seven. So it means that you have repeat the trials during seven days. And in the primary analysis, when you compare uh, those patients with uh, non-ECMO initiation versus ECMO initiation, we were very surprised to see that, uh, in fact, we didn't show a very important benefit of ECMO compared to non-ECMO. And we showed that uh, the ECMO strategy had a higher survival probability at day seven, meaning that ECMO will protect from mortality uh, most of the patients during the first week until day, nine, day 28. But after day 28, you see that the red curve, red curve is below the black one. And uh, we, we show that there is a decrease during follow-up uh, of the survival uh, with ECMO initiation. It was even worse, even non-significant, but the uh, mortality survival was 63% uh, in the ECMO group versus 65% in the non-ECMO group. What was interesting is in the sensitivity analysis, when we look at the ECMO case volume, and you see that 
if you split the ECMO population between ECMO in low volume center versus ECMO in high volume center, if you compare it to those patients who, who did not receive ECMO, you see that the outcome is very, very different. And we showed that the survival at DEN80 was 78% in patients treated in high volume center compared to 64% in those non-receiving ECMO. And you see that the survival uh, for ECMO in low volume center was much lower compared to uh, uh, the non-ECMO group, meaning that having an ECMO in a low volume center is associated, probably associated with the worst prognosis compared to not receiving ECMO. We also uh, did the sensitivity analysis by restricting the population, by comparing patients, uh, by restricting population uh, uh, managed in Paris and greater area with a specific organization uh, during that pandemic to handle with uh, the, the number of cases with a specific reorganization. And you see that in that case, you see that having uh, ECMO initiation was associated with a better prognosis compared to non-ECMO initiation, 57% survival versus 62% survival. ECMO was also uh, uh, more beneficial when you restrict uh, your analysis to the population with Tever hypoxemia with PF ratio lower than 65. You see that there is a strict and in, in, in the uh, strong, uh, an important benefit of ECMO compared to non-ECMO initiation. Sam, um, if you initiate late your ECMO between day five and day seven, the better outcome of ECMO was not so um, straightforward. It was even the risk. It was even associated with the worst prognosis uh, with ECMO. Uh, initiation when it was initiated uh, after a uh, DeFi. So uh, using this uh, methodology, which sounds maybe a little bit complex uh, when you have a first read uh, of the paper, uh, this strategy, uh, this methodology was also used in different publications uh, in the ECMO field. It was uh, published, it was used in uh, the paper of Shafi on all and colleagues who published in Antarctica Medicine, uh, 180 ECMO patients. They did exactly the same. They did a, a target trial emulation comparing ECMO patient, uh, ECMO patient who received ECMO versus patient who did, who did not uh, receive ECMO. And they found a large benefit uh, of ECMO compared to non-ECMO groups. So these this results were quite different from our result. There are some explanation, potential explanation. Uh, we use broader eligibility criteria. In, um, in the study of Shafi and colleagues, they uh, took only patients who spent were in ICU uh, for only seven days. And we used broader eligibility criteria by taking, uh, by including patients who stay in ICU for uh, until uh, day 14. So there might be a candidate uh, during the, the first 15 days in ICU. All patients have a lower pre-ECMO PF ratio, have a lower static compliance compared 
to uh, the patient, including the study of Shafi and colleagues, meaning that maybe all patients have a greater respiratory severity. We report also a, a higher use of pre-mopoint positioning compared uh, to the study of, of Shafi and all, meaning that our population was probably m- much more severe and our population was refractory to almost all pre adjunct therapies. And during the same uh, uh, months, it was just one month before uh, the publication of our uh, paper, uh, we have exactly the same methodology applied in the COVID-19 uh, with a large database of the COVID-19 critical care consortium investigator showing uh, a risk difference uh, in favor of uh, ECMO compared to uh, a non-ECMO patient uh, and the difference of survival, the reduction in hospital mortality was 7%. In that paper, they also show that age, severity of hypoxemia, as well as duration, intensity of mechanical ventilation uh, impact uh, uh, the outcome in this uh, uh, patient with COVID-19. So I think the three papers are doing in the same way, providing exactly the same, not exactly, but providing the same message that there is a differential survival associated with ECMO compared to non-ECMO patients. Our paper or work highlights that this better outcome is uh, uh, very impressive when it's performed in high volume center, when it's performed in region where ECMO services had been organized to handle high demand, like we did in, in Paris and Greater Area. Also, uh, it was shown in, in the three papers that if you initiate ECMO early on after intubation, it's going to be associated with better prognosis. It's better, obviously, in patients with profound hypoxemic. Uh, status. So this three paper, I think, uh, are the best way to to approximate uh, RCT. I think we will never see uh, RCT for COVID-19 patients uh, on ECMO. And this, uh, uh, this three works reinforce uh, the need for regional ECMO networks. Uh, ECMO should be providing experience center. My personal feeling is that if you are doing in a non-experience ECMO center, I think it's better to not start ECMO and to continue with conventional mechanical ventilation. And the prognosis is probably better if you continue with conventional mechanical ventilation, front positioning, and so on. And if you want to put an ECMO, you have to uh, do it in experience center, uh, able to handle or the potential complication of this complex uh, patient. And this is probably most more important in the context of the pandemic when uh, uh, we have a high resource uh, constraint. Thank you very much for your intention. I, I don't know if I am on time, yes. Uh, Dr. Schmidt, this, this talk was wonderful. You um, shared a wealth of expertise about um, COVID, ARDS, and ECMO that you and your group have been publishing for a long time, which is Fantastic. And I think the way you um, simply described a very complex thing of the target trial emulation was, was masterful. So thank you for sharing that with us.